This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Blog and commentary uh, is waiting for you on the Scott Thompson Show page. Patrick Brown leading the Progressive Conservative Party, not Sam Oosterhoff. Uh, a lot of people uh, upset, and we're going to talk to Aiden Johnson momentarily from now and get his take on this. Uh, he's looking for an apology uh, from Sam Oosterhoff in regarding comments to Bill 28. Uh, like I mentioned, we're going to talk to that, uh, talk to him about that in just a sec. But my point is this, and you know, I, I don't agree with Sam Oosterhoff's uh, take on on sex ed and, and homosexuality and all of that. I'm, you know, I, I don't think Ontario needs to move backwards on this, uh, only forward. Uh, that being said. He, it's his religious belief. He is an extremely religious person. And when we start accommodating religions, we have to respect what they are all about. And that's what this person is. Do we not have to still respect his belief? And at the end of the day, uh, who cares? Because he's not the leader of the party, and the party has already said, we don't believe in what Sam Musteroff says on this issue. He can hold his own, but he's got to toe the party line. So again, Patrick Brown has been very clear on where he stands on all of this. So, um, uh, you know, again, I don't agree with what Sam Musteroff says, but he's not going to have an effect on the party. Uh, Patrick Brown's made it clear he's pulling the party into the center, and this discussion's over. Same with the sex ed curriculum and and the rest of it, and that's why he voted for Bill 28 yesterday. So, you know, I don't know. Round and round and round and we go, and at the end of the day, what's more important to you, uh, the religious belief of an MPP or your soaring electricity bill? Stay focused. Stay focused, Ontario. You're getting distracted by liberals again. Stay focused. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, we'll, we should get this uh, interview in now because it runs uh, a certain amount of time. We recorded this a little earlier today. Uh, Aiden Johnson, Ward 1 Councillor for Hamilton, uh, he was stuck up uh, in meetings at this time, so we recorded this earlier on this morning, and asked him uh, his scenario in regard to uh, what uh, Sam Oosteroff has said, and uh, here's that interview. Ward 1 Councillor Aiden Johnson is with us. Good afternoon, Aiden. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Obviously, you're not happy with uh, what newly minted uh, MPP Sam Oosteroff is saying. You, you're looking for an apology. Can you explain on that? Expand on that? Well, he has said that the new legislation creating equality for LGBT families is disrespectful to mothers and fathers. And I disagree with that view strongly. I think that the new legislation creates equality and respect for mothers and fathers. And I think that he owes LGBT families an apology on that basis. Uh, he said he's not homophobic. He said everyone deserves dignity and respect. Do you think he's a homophobe? I think that he opposes LGBT equality. And I think that that is unacceptable in an MPP from our Hamilton region. Uh, obviously, he's an extremely religious person. How do you balance all that, Aiden? Uh, sorry, how do you balance religion with supporting gay rights? If well, that's your question, many Christians and many other people of faith find absolutely no contradiction between their faith and supporting LGBT rights. But there's a lot that do. <laughs> there's a lot that feel the same way Sam does. And there does. are also people who have no faith who oppose LGBT rights. Mm -hmm. So again, he, he's saying that this is his religious belief. Is he not entitled to his religious belief? Of course he is. He's absolutely 100% entitled to his religious belief. It's also the case that members of provincial parliament ought not undermine constitutional law, and the equality of LGBT people is a principle of constitutional law. 
He's perfectly entitled to his views, but he's not entitled to create laws based on those views when those views are opposed to basic human rights. Uh, his party has said, uh, Patrick Brown, his party leader, has said those views do not represent the party, and he'll basically have to toe the party line. Uh, does, that, does that hold any weight with you? Well, I'm very pleased that Patrick Brown uh, has voted in favor of LGBT equality. I'd like to congratulate Patrick Brown for doing that. It's too bad that our new Hamilton Region MPP is out of step with the uh, stated principle of his party leader. Uh, again, I keep going back to, re- to his religious belief. If this is a core religious belief, d- does that make him a homophobe? Um, certainly having core religious beliefs does not make anybody a homophobe. Okay, but again, there's plenty in his position that feel the same way that he does. Again, how, sure. do, you, how do you balance well, that? Um, he claims that his views sprang from a profound religious conviction. Mm-hmm. I have no reason to doubt that his views sprang from a profound religious conviction. There are many people who are pro-LGBT rights who state that their support for gay and lesbian dignity and equality also springs from a profound religious conviction, and I respect that position also. Do you think religion is an out for him here in this situation, a scapegoat? Uh, I don't know what you mean. What do you mean by that? Well, he's using his religion to hide the fact that he's a homophobe. I don't think he's hiding anything. He's very clear about his opposition to LGBT equality. What do you want Sam Oosteroff to say? How, How could he possibly make this right for you? Well, I think he needs to retract his statement that this legislation is disrespectful to mothers and fathers. Uh, He needs to get clear on the law. He has stated that the new legislation will put children in a more vulnerable position, when in fact the opposite is true. The new legislation clarifies and strengthens the rights of LGBT families, the parentage rights within those families. Therefore, it puts children of LGBT families in a stronger position a more legally clear and regulated position. I find it disappointing that Sam Oosterhoff is acting against the best interests of LGBT families and the children in those families. As you mentioned, it is the law, Aiden. Does it matter what his personal views are as long as he's towing the party line? I mean, clearly his constituents voted him in. I have no doubt that he got the most votes in his riding and was properly legally elected and sworn in. And I disagree strongly with his views. If he has reprehensible views that are contrary to human rights, he has no right to use those views as the basis for legislating and no right to use those views uh, as the basis for um, the creation of law in Ontario. Have you ever thought of having a conversation with him, Aiden? I would be pleased to. What would you say to him? I would ask him, well, I, I would ask him to talk about his views. I'd like to understand his views better and more. Uh, perhaps, you know... Uh, if he has, if perhaps the media has misrepresented his views, I'd be very interested to hear him talk about that, and I'm sure we'd go from there. Do you think you'll find, or you would find, common ground there with him? I really don't know. Are you? Uh, do you have any plans on reaching out to him? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, he's he's perfectly uh, free to reach out to me. I'd be pleased to hear from him. Uh, the ball is very much in his court right now. Where do you think this is going? How do you think this is going to play out? Do you think I really be... don't know. I hope that he stops making public statements opposing LGBT rights. Uh, do you think we'll be still talking about this a year, two years, three years from now? Do you think he'll uh, resolve this issue? I don't know. You'll have to ask Sam. And we'll try to do that. 
Aiden Johnson has been with us, counselor for Ward 1. Aiden, thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. And one last thing I'd like to say. Go ahead. He's the youngest ever MPP in the history of Ontario, and I think that's great. I'm proud that the Hamilton region has elected a young person to provincial parliament and the youngest ever MPP at that. And I think that we all need to be careful not to be ageist when we talk about Sam Oosterhoff. His opposition to LGBT equality does not come from the fact that he's young. And I, I want to make that very clear. I am proud that we've elected the youngest ever MPP. I just wish that he would affirm LGBT rights and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in our country. Well said. Aiden Johnson has been with us, counselor for Ward 1. Thank you, Aiden. Thank you. So there you have it. That's the interview from uh, a little earlier on today. Uh, you know, it, it's, again, I, you know, here's two people with two, and, and again, I don't subscribe to Sam Musteroff's uh, beliefs. Uh, I believe in the sex ed curriculum, and, uh, you know, I believe in, uh, in in moving, continuing to move Ontario forward as opposed to backwards. Um, but in this country, we have given people religious freedoms, religious rights. Um, and, and, and I guess what I'm saying here is this is the way this, this guy was brought up. This is what his personal beliefs are. Um, which is why I firmly stand by that religion can be interpreted in so many different ways, uh, which is why it is not used in law. It can be interpreted so many different ways. One person can read one passage, get something out of it. Another person can read the exact same passage and get something completely different out of it. It's all left to interpretation. In the law, not the case. I mean, judge and jury try to figure out how the law is applied in certain cases, but that's, that's an entirely different entity. And Aiden said lots of religions support LGBT communities, which is very true. But there's lots of people within the exact same religion that don't. I'm not saying that's right. I believe it's wrong. But I don't believe, I don't believe in religion. I don't believe in organized religion. I'm agnostic. So, um, but again, if you're going to give a, a person the right to express themselves and what their religious belief is, this is, this is the melting pot you get. This is what you get. Um, and, you know, I believe that Sam's, I shouldn't speak for Sam, but I believe that usually once people get to know the community more and, and what is going on, they usually relax these sorts of feelings. I don't know if that's the case with Sam. I can't speak to him or, or for him. Uh, we've, we're trying to get him on on this issue, but uh, obviously, I, I think I don't think anybody wants to touch it with a ten foot pole. But that being said, if that's the case, then Sam's got to stop talking about it, and 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 basically, you know, keep his personal beliefs to himself, I guess, because at the end of the day, Sam Ustrop is not running the PC party. Patrick Brown is, and Patrick Brown has already stated what the position of the leader is and the party. And that's not what Sam says. So I wouldn't feel threatened by Sam. Is it right in what he's doing and what he says? No. But again, I don't believe in what a lot of religious people say. Because I don't think it's about belonging to a club and what someone else says. I believe in freedom and equality for all, and we all have independent thought. But that's a whole different issue. And again, I don't agree with Sam, but you can't, you can't say you live in a country where people are allowed to express their religious freedom and then dump on Sam. 
And again, I'm not worried about Sam because Sam's not leading the party. And as soon as the majority of the party starts speaking like Sam do, does, then you got something to worry about. But at this point, I think it's like the Kelly Leeches of the world for different reasons. Uh, Stan is on the line. If you want to uh, expand on this, send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone line's always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Stan, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are this. Am I speaking with Scott? Yep, go ahead. All right, Scott. You know, the natural order and progress of life is male and female. LGBT is a club, as far as I'm concerned. Can I ask you a question, Stan? Yeah, go ahead, Scott. Do you ever remember when you're in your adolescent life, do you remember ever saying to yourself, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're heterosexual, are you? I'm not proud of it. No, well, that's and fine. I'm, that's fine. That's cool. What, I'm, what I'm asking you, what I'm asking you is, do you ever remember choosing to be heterosexual? Do you ever remember saying, "Hmm, girls, boys, I'm taking girls"? Do you remember no, saying that? No, it's not. It's not a matter of choice, friend. Oh, well, that's you what I'm born saying. Male and female. Yeah, but do you? Re- yeah, but do you remember you saying? Do you remember saying? Accept your maleness or femaleness. No, no. I'm asking you the question. Do you remember saying to yourself? I like girls more than I like boys. I'm going to chase girls. Do you remember saying no, that? It, it wasn't necessary, Scott. Exactly. It, it wasn't necessary. But for some, Stan... I'm a male, and there's I understand. Girls, and I understand. And- I understand what you're saying, Sam, or Stan. I understand completely what you're saying. But what my point is, is somebody ha- some people have that discussion, and it's the other way. And? And that's how you have bisexual or gay people. Oh, it's a discussion process. So it's not it a discussion a process. It's something you're born with, Stan. No, no, it's a choice, friend. No, that's where I disagree, and that's where you're wrong, and I think yeah. the first thing you should do, Stan, is talk to some gay people, yeah. and they'll, they'll set you straight on that. Uh, again, oh. again, sorry? Mr. Oosterhoff. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you're cutting out now. Um, again, I, I don't believe, like Stan does, that people decide to be gay. People may decide to come out of the closet and be honest with themselves, but you don't sit there one day and go, boys, girls, which one am I sexually attracted to? Which one can I fall in love with? You don't ask yourself that. You're just attracted to the opposite sex, usually. But that's not always the case. Some people go through adolescence and discover they're attracted and falling in love with people of the same sex. They don't make the choice. Their body makes the choice for them. And then they may hide it because it's not socially acceptable in their circles. And then one day, if they're lucky, come out of the closet and be free. But I don't ever remember choosing between liking males or females. I remember going through adolescence and being attracted to females. But from the gay people I've talked to and are friends of mine, that's not the case with them. They can have sex with anybody, meaningless sex with anybody but they can only fall in love with someone of the same sex. It's something you're born with. It's the way you're wired. It's not a choice. Why would you choose to be persecuted by the rest of the population? It just doesn't make sense. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
All right, in another spin to this sort of thing, Kelly Leach's campaign, she is, of course, uh, running for the uh, progressive conservative leadership for the Federal Party of Canada. Kelly Leach's campaign seems to be drawing ire from her own constituents. A campaign has started in her writing of Simcoe Gray entitled Hashtag Not My MP which is reminiscent of the Not My President campaign in the United States. Uh, from what I understand that's uh, happening, uh, Mark uh, Ruzzo, or Rizzolo rather, Mark Rizzolo, who we're trying to get on the air, unavailable today, we're going to hope for him tomorrow, from a place called Lavender, Ontario. Doesn't that sound nice and peaceful? Lavender, Ontario. My goodness. All right. Uh, he's going around at night and, uh, and after hours of his job, and I understand he's a principal. Uh, he's going around and he's putting signs up on people's homes that basically said, Leech, not my hashtag, not my MP. And of course, uh, he's basically saying uh, in, a, in a letter uh, in McLean's, I woke up after the election and saw Leach celebrating Trump's win. I thought we got to do something with uh, the sign idea during a conversation at a men's book club and quickly hired a graphic designer. The movement supported uh, was support, wasn't in support of any political party and the people who have ordered them, including uh, a very wide range of people. Uh, it's the loaded and loose language, uh, people are saying, that has all, uh, I guess, the people in this area, in, in Kelly Leach's area, a little concerned about what she's what she's uh, what she means, what she stands for. To talk more about all of this, George Breckenridge is with us, retired po- uh, retired political science professor at McMaster University, and is with us now. Good afternoon, George. How are you today? Uh, good afternoon. I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Uh, we certainly do appreciate this. Boy, it certainly seems like we've become uh, a world of extremes, doesn't it, George? It does. It does. It's. It's. Uh, I think it, in in this case, the blowback she's getting from her writing. It seems to have been triggered by the fact that she openly supported, you know, rejoiced in Trump's uh, Trump's win, and uh, now she had. I mean, she'd been going down this road for a while. Uh, she made her name, and you know, she became public, you know, figure at the end of the last uh, federal campaign. You may recall with this snitch line idea, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was, which I don't think helped the conservatives the least bit. And uh, now that she's running for the leadership, along with a whole lot of other candidates, she obviously seems to think that there's a there's a market for in the conservative among conservative supporters for this kind of uh, Trump-like line. You know, Canadian. We got to test people for Canadian values and stuff like that. I, I it's um, it's it, it's obviously her strategy, and and uh, the fact that she, you know she it, it's very like a lot of what Trump has been done. It's not quite as bad as a lot of the things mm-hmm. that Trump said, but it's, all, it's going in the same kind of direction. And the fact that she openly, the only one I think probably who openly rejoiced at Trump's win, uh, probably pushed some of the people in her writing over the edge. Uh, do you think this is a strategy, or do you think she really believes this? And the reason I'm asking that is because, you know, Trump, after all the things he said, uh, you know, and, uh, that's during the campaign. It's as if none of it matters. Well, right, exactly, exactly. I mean, with Trump, you have no idea what he believes. I'm not even sure he knows himself from one day to the next. So he was very obviously using these kind of racist and etc. appeals in order to uh, to appeal to the prejudices of a certain segment of the population, and obviously it, it worked. And is, do you think Kelly Leach is doing the same thing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, who knows what people you know always believe? I mean, the politicians are particularly when they're running for uh, leadership like this, they're they're calculating. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're you know they're they're not saying things they think will be unpopular with the people they want to support them. 
So it's very difficult to know. I mean, she's from Alberta, actually. I mean, she's not actually, uh, doesn't have mm-hmm. strong roots in the writing, apparently. So she's from Alberta. So a lot of people say, well, we're not quite so surprised, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> That's unfair to a lot of Albertans, I know. But, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, um, no, uh, to, to keep pursuing this line in her campaign for the leadership uh, means that she obviously thinks that this will pay off in some kind of way. This, uh, there'll be enough support for to to carry her. I don't know. You know, I don't know how far, I don't think it'll carry her to the leadership, but it'll carry her some of the way. Uh, what about the sign campaign that's going on? Not my hashtag. Not my MP. Well, I mean, it's good good to put pressure on. I mean, the next federal election is not for another three years or so. so mm-hmm. You can't get rid of her. You know, and if that's what they're trying to do, there's no way of recalling somebody like there is in some of the American states. So, so, but it's just a matter of letting her know that she doesn't, you know, she's not, a lot of her her constituents are not happy with where she's going. Uh, do you think this is partisan? Uh, um, uh, the person behind this says it's not a political issue. Is it, though, and could it quickly become one where oh, all of a sudden well, the opposition parties no, jump on it? Well, it's, it's not a partisan issue, really. I don't know about the people up there, but, but I mean, because Lisa Raitt and... Uh, and uh, John, Rona Ambrose, the ten, you know, the temporary leader, have both condemned this kind of this kind of line. So lots and lots of conservatives don't don't go along with this at all. That's that's why I find it a bit surprising that she thinks this has come some kind of a, a winning strategy, even in the conservative party. I find that hard to believe. It seems that the pendulum the pendulum is swinging back and forth very very quickly right now. Like yeah. all of a sudden it goes one way and then it's going the other way yeah. and then back again. How do you see this all playing out? Well, the um, there are 14 candidates for the leadership, and a lot of the leading conservatives, uh, like um, Peter McKay or Sean, Jason Kenney, who took off for Alberta, or Tony Clement has already withdrawn. A lot of the leading candidates have are not running, so th- there seems to be a sense that you know Trudeau is is probably going to win the next election. That's new, normally how the pattern goes. <laughs> And although the election is quite a long time away, and therefore the, being a conservative opposition leader is going to be a pretty thankless job for quite a while, and so that's why a lot of the big the bigger names have have opted out. And there's about 14 different people running currently, and so it's going to be interesting to see how far that gets whittled down. Now, but but in in more general terms, I really do, I really think this kind of direction. Uh, sort of what we now might call a sort of a Trump-like direction is not a winning direction for NBA. I mean, I think one of the good things that the Harper government did, and Jason Kenney was the point man on this, was to realize that unless the conservatives made good contact and appealed to, you know, the large immigrant communities, particularly in the 905 area, um, they were doomed in the long run, you know, because this has become a large part of the population in the urban areas, and Jason Kenney realized that, and the liberals have had, have had traditionally had good connections with immigrant groups going way, way back. But the conservatives t- had tended to neglect it, and he, one of the good things they did, I think, from a national point of view, never mind a partisan point of view, was to make some real effort to um, appeal to and to contact and get familiar with all these relatively new communities in Canada, and she, of course, is going in exactly the opposite direction. I mean, all that, this is this is this yeah. is going to offend uh, these communities like crazy. I mean, arguing that they don't have Canadian values, or some of them don't, enough of them don't have Canadian values, or, and all the rest are, are not integrating properly. That's just nonsense. All the studies show 
that when you, when a new group comes in, and this is true in the United States as well, when a new group comes in, people say, oh, they're never going to integrate, they're not going to integrate. But they do, mm-hmm. like all the other people do, like all the other Canadians and Americans, they do. They want to integrate. They want to become fully Canadian. And that's what they're doing, you know. And so the notion that people have to be screened, and even if this, even though this could be an effective way to screen for, you know, potential terrorists, nobody believes that. That's a, that's a ridiculous way to go about it. There are other ways to deal with that sort of thing. You talked about how. Um and I've heard this in circles that, you know, not a lot of people are, well, a lot of people are jumping into the ring for the PC leadership, but just as yeah. you, as you mentioned, not, either, the last count, yeah. but as you mentioned, no real, uh, no real star no, candidates at this point. Yeah. Um, and, and lots had said for the same reason that you just said that, you know, Trudeau may get uh, two kicks at this can. Yeah. However, I have heard that this, that, that that pendulum is now swinging back and that the uh, rhetoric after the Trump election, yeah. uh, as it starts to die down, um, people will realize that the conservative movement is not the alt-right movement. And yeah. although those people voted for Trump and have a tendency to vote Republican, yeah. that's not what the movement is about. And, and let me read you something. And this was an interesting uh, piece okay. that my producer uh, brought to me. Uh, Revolt is against ruling elite. Yeah. Uh, the left, the alt-left media, including uh, The Star, CBC, CNN, The New York Times, ABC, CBS, NBC, and their affiliates would have you believe that right-wing populism elected Donald Trump and may also be sweeping Europe and coming to Canada. Not true. Liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans are revolting against the ruling class elite, which consists of politicians from all parties, alt-left, alt-right, entertainment, or sorry, alt-left, entertainment industry leaders, educated elite, especially instructors in schools and at universities. So in other words, this isn't about bringing uh, a platform that the alt-right can, can, can umbrella under. This is about crossing all party lines and people who are just fed up with the status quo. And, you know, I've said this all along that, you know, I wasn't surprised and actually predicted at the night of the election that that Trump would win, not because all of these racist and alt-right wing people were, were now being motivated and coming out of the woodwork. I think people are just upset with the status quo and we're willing to throw a stick into the spokes of the wheel just to send that message. Oh, I think that that's that's true in a general sense in the United States. I think that's true. There were a number a number of there was economic discontent. There were people who worried about the way America was changing, the way the demographics were changing, and there's always a lot of animosity towards um, Washington. And Washington has not been has been pretty stuck in the for the last little while. Yeah. So it's a, co- a component of a number of these kind of things, which added up to not to, not to a majority. Obviously, she didn't. You know, she, Hillary won the popular vote, but to majorities in the right places to win the election. I don't. Th- I honestly don't think that you get anything like the same animosity in Canada. I mean, there's some Western animosity towards Ontario. You know, mm-hmm. it's a historic. Thing. We've seen lots of that, but I don't think it's anything like the kind of the. Um, but you don't think there's a rising discontentment, a disenfranchisement no. in Canada no, where, where people are don't. feeling. I honestly don't. I mean, there's going to be some, you know, Justin Trudeau's popularity is, you know, is going to go down, you know, inevitably to some extent mm-hmm. as he makes difficult decisions, which he's now beginning to do, um, you know. But but I honestly don't see anything like the degree of dis- dissatisfaction. 
with uh, how things are going. What about in Ontario with things like electricity oh, well, prices? Well, Ontario is a different matter. You know, there you've got a liberal government which has been in power for a long time, and you know, and they're that's a, they're, they're much more vulnerable to that kind of feeling. And I think there obviously is a feeling like that for the towards the Ontario government. But the Justin Trudeau government is, I mean, has only recently been elected. So but I don't you think that a lot of people, especially in Ontario, believe that Trudeau and Wynne are joined at the hip, even though they're with the federal and provincial? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, look at look at the people that are working on cap and trade and some of the energy stuff. I mean, well, it's sure. the same people. Yeah, I know, I know. But I, I think, uh, and Kathleen has certainly, you know, cozied up to him as much as she could for obvious reasons. But to some of his popularity will will rub off. Well, we've got even we've got a little while to go before the Ontario election, but I think the the Liberal government in Ontario is vulnerable to the feeling that you know they've just been in power too long and they're making they've made too many mistakes and and they're getting a bit corrupt around the edges. Uh, I think that that feeling is there, and that's what they have to fight. They seem to be realize that now. And that's what they're going to have to fight. But Ottawa's situation is really quite different, I think. What, but, but at what point does Trudeau realize that Wynne is trying to get some of that good rubbing off on him, <laughs> but some of that bad might rub off on him? Or sorry, no, vice I versa, her? So. No, I, I honestly don't think so. I, I think he's pretty immune for quite a while, yeah. Uh, even with cap-and-trade and such coming and his link to Ontario well, the, on this? Uh, well, the, the carbon tax idea. Yeah, I mean, a lot of business, a lot of industry, all the provinces except Saskatchewan are signing on. And a lot of a lot of industry has argued that this is the best way, you know, this is the best, the fairest way, to deal with uh, emissions and that sort of thing. So I don't, I really don't sense anything like the same kind of swelling and feeling, uh, which there has, which admittedly there was in the United States. I don't see it in relation to Ottawa at all. I uh, we see, we certainly see it on the left, don't we? So why wouldn't we see it on the right? Well, how do you mean? I mean. Well, I, I think that there's a lot of politicians on the left, in, just as there's politicians on the right that are jumping on the Trump bandwagon, there's lots yeah. of politicians on the left that are saying, you know, yeah, but you know very, mean, quick to, very quick to point out anything that's not where they are is alt-right, as yeah, opposed but, but to the, just the right there. The movement that Kelly Leach was responsible for, um, you know, the fuss about the niqab and that sort of thing, right at the end of the, of the conservative yeah. government, was really repudiated by lots of conservatives. Mm-hmm. So you can't paint the conservative party as a whole as, as being like that. They're just not. Now, she, Kelly Leach obviously thinks there are enough of them who respond to that kind of message to carry her, you know, well into the leadership contest, but we'll have to wait and see. That isn't until next spring, so we'll see. Do you think that for either party it's about pulling the core, it's about making sure that you get those core voters, or do you think it's about bringing parties back to the center? And as we well, started the discussion with there extremes... Isn't, there isn't the same degree of core loyalty in Canada as there is in the United States. The United States has become very polarized. Canada is not really nearly that polarized. A lot of people have voted for different parties, conservative and liberal and, mm-hmm. and NDP parties at different times. So the whole, the whole, the whole attitude toward parties is substantially different in Canada, I think. So what this sign campaign that has started in Kelly Leach's uh, writing, uh, hashtag not my, uh, not my MP, uh, where do you think this will go? Do you think that this, uh, well, where do you think it will well, go? Well, it won't go anywhere because, you know, it won't go anywhere in the sense that there's nothing they can do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, until the next election, which is a while, you know, a good while away. Um, but it, when it puts from, it lets her know that her constituents are unhappy. Uh, a lot of them are unhappy, but and it's a way for them to express their unhappiness. But there's nothing, you know, nothing concrete can come out of it. 
until the next election. Uh, Kevin O'Leary has been in Toronto media recently uh, talking that he's working towards putting uh, a team together and such. Uh, Your thoughts on that? He feels the pendulum (laughs) is swinging back. Well, you know, he's the the, the Canada's closest equivalent to Trump, I would think, in terms of the fact of being an arrogant... But wait, a, but wait a sec, George. A minute ago, we were nothing like him. Now he's the closest thing. I mean... Well, but can... O'Leary is the closest thing. I know the Conservative Party. Yeah, the yeah. O'Leary is, in the sense that he's an arrogant businessman who assumes that what works in business works in politics, and of course it doesn't. These are two completely different fields that require completely different skills. So it'll be interesting if he gets in. But uh, and he may take over that kind of that 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 that, part, that end of the party. Who knows? It depends on what, what you know, or he may just appeal on his business skills, you know, uh, and stay away from that sort of thing. So we'll see what happens anyway. Uh, do you think uh, people will look at him and say, "No, he's a Trump North, uh, not into that," or do you think will people will look at him for his business acumen? The, the latter, I think. I think that'll be his appeal. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, he's, if he actually does get in, I mean, a lot of these people, you know, they look at the idea, but when, uh, they find politics is a lot messier and, and, and doesn't <laughs> a come lot with more frustrating than running a business. And certainly doesn't come with the perks of being a wealthy individual. No, right. Uh, not all the time, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so do you think he will throw his hat into the ring? I have no idea. I have no idea. Sometimes these people dicker with it for a variety of reasons to stay in the news, and sometimes they, don't, they go through with it, and sometimes they don't. I mean, most people thought Trump would never, would never actually run. Yeah. And uh, lo and behold, he did, and he won. <laughs> uh, yeah. I've got, I got to go. i got to go and teach class. All right, I'll let you go, George. George okay. Breckenridge, retired political science professor at McMaster University. Thanks for the time, George. Okay, you're welcome. Much appreciated. It is 12.55. I thought he was retired. Uh, you know, most people are busier in retirement than they ever are in their working life. If that's the case, I'm never retiring. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've certainly heard lots about fentanyl and opioids and uh, the whole crisis in uh, the whole opioid crisis that is uh, being felt uh, across the country. It seems now we're finally uh, realizing just how severe this is and how many people are addicted to these types of drugs. Health Canada has placed restrictions on chemicals that are used to create fentanyl. However, these are, uh, however, are these restrictions going to do anything in the long run? In is, are people actually making their own? Uh, to talk more about all of this, Michael Parkinson uh, Parkinson is with us, drug strategy specialist with the Waterloo Crime Prevention Council, and is with us now. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you today? Great, thank you. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time, uh, the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, do Canadians have a grasp on how big this problem is? Uh, well, I would say we're uh, a little slow on the solutions for sure. Um, certainly out in British Columbia and Alberta, if... Um, you are someone who has been affected by substance use. Yeah, absolutely. You've got a handle on it, and not just recently. Um, but I, I think where we're really bogging down is at senior levels of government and amongst other agencies that are, uh, you know, really set up to protect public health and safety. And, you know, on our end, we've watched the bootleg fentanyl crisis unfold or, over a number of years, and um, there's a strong sense that. Um, we're not acting with the the kind of urgency uh, that we would if it was a different kind of uh, cause of death that was happening, for example, SARS or uh, Zika virus or even motor vehicle collisions. And um, so we haven't seen an urgent and proportional response. And, you know, the Center for Disease Control has 
recommended uh, for the first time a year ago, uh, that those efforts really need to be done in collaboration with local communities and a wide variety of stakeholders. Collaboration tends to be really difficult for those uh, sort of status quo agencies and senior levels of government. So, yeah, there's a, I think there's a growing recognition um, um, sort of east of British Columbia and Alberta, but uh, certainly a recognition that much more needs to be done and much more quickly. You bring up a very valid point. If this was SARS or the Zika virus, we'd be all over this. Why, why the different attitude with something like this? Well, yeah, no kidding, we'd be all over it. Um, and, and for context, you know, 44 Canadians died from SARS total. And I would guess that on a weekly basis across Canada, we lose 44 people to an opioid overdose each and every week. So, yeah, I, I think what's happening is we're seeing, you know, all those stereotypes and stigmatization and sometimes outright discrimination being played out across multiple sectors. Uh, uh, and at the end of the day, it manifests itself in a, a system uh, that is unable or unwilling to respond to what is really a leading cause of acute uh, death right across Canada, and, and not just recently either. You know, for in Ontario, um, in 2000, there were 111 people who passed away from an opioid-related overdose. In 2015, that number uh, had grown to 700 people. So that's, what, about a 540% increase uh, in the last 15 years. In total, that looks like 7,000 dead Ontarians from opioid-related um, deaths. Um, and you compare that to 44 deaths from SARS across Canada total. We have not seen a proportional response. Boy, oh boy, does that ever draw uh, an interesting analogy. You talked about stereotypes and that, you know, people have a tendency to stereotype this, which is why perhaps it doesn't get the same recognition as a Zika or SARS, but that's not the case. Who are the victims here? They're all walks of life, are they not? They absolutely are all walks of life. And, you know, before 2000, we really didn't have uh, a serious problem with opioid-related deaths and addiction, and, uh, you know, what occurred at the end of the 90s um, and, and has continued to this day um, is the provision of prescription opioids through um, uh, physicians' offices, and, you know, we spent billions of dollars over the last 15 years providing those uh, opioids, a, a substance of known dependency with serious adverse effects, and we've known that for more than 100 years. Uh, so there should be no surprise that we now find ourselves in a epidemic of of death and addiction. Um, How did that but, happen? But, How did that happen, though, Michael? Like, I mean, as you said, there, there's no uh, there's no shortage of information on how serious these drugs are. Why did we start over prescribing them way back when? How did that start? Well, yeah, it's a great question, um, I, and I'm my jaw is still on the ground, frankly. But I, I mean, around that time, you know, uh, Purdue um, uh, Pharmaceuticals they they developed a, a drug called OxyContin. Yeah. It was a time-release opioid, and uh, and at the same time, Purdue in the U.S. they made some claims that have subsequently been proven to be uh, untrue. They were uh, convicted in court, and they paid a fine, uh, no jail time. Uh, and some of that marketing, uh, some of the false marketing, and uh, made its way into Canada as well. And you know, regulators approved it, and governments at the provincial and federal level have subsidized those substances and 
physicians prescribed it, pharmacists have dispensed it, and and here we are. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's absolutely befuddling. Now, you know, I was in Ottawa uh, a couple of weeks ago for the federal summit, and uh, you know, the good news here is there's a a recognition that we need to dial back opioid prescribing, and there's not a lot of clinical evidence to support um, their continued prescribing. Um, but there's also a real risk here that uh, now that we have, you know, thousands of Canadians addicted to opioids, and you know, you or I would get become dependent or addicted on opioids if we took them for a week mm. or so. Um, what about those people, and what about those people who are suffering in chronic pain? We know that you can't just take away one class of drugs. Yeah, but that being said, like you said, what happened prior to Oxy? I mean, you know, are are doctors now looking at this differently now? Um, People were suffering pain long before Oxy came on the market. That's right. And, um, you know, there were some pain management alternatives that existed at the time. And um, but really, physicians were accused uh, by pharma of being uh, opioid phobic. And and that's not a made up word. That's the word that was used. And um, there was a I can't overstate how uh, how deep the uh, marketing efforts from big pharma reached. Um, in the U.S., you would see it at state medical examiners' boards, and you would see it, uh, just as in Canada, infiltrate into medical schools and so on and so on. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's options for uh, folks suffering chronic pain, but they're often not supported by governments, you know, the opioids are subsidized um, by the Ontario government, for example, but is massage therapy or, or some of the other non-pharmaceutical uh, approaches subsidized? Boy, isn't that a valid point. Holy smokes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember being prescribed Oxy several years ago for an, a severe earache, and it was extremely painful at the time. But in retrospect, you're thinking, my goodness, for an earache, it just it just seems it just seems over the top. And I remember taking these, and 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 they just made me ill. Uh, yeah. I, I stopped taking them. Um, but but it obviously there was a time when these were they were just doling these things out left, right, and center. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you hear stories of someone walks into a dentist and they they walk out with 40 oxycodones, right? Mm-hmm. When, you know, if you need any, you need only a handful at most. Um, and those stories are, are commonplace. Everybody, if they haven't experienced them themselves, they know someone who's been in that situation. And, you know, uh, you know, the clinical evidence suggests that, you know, it just takes a few days before you would feel the effects of withdrawal um, if you stop taking those opioids. And what we have right across Canada and the U.S. Um, are patients who are on opioids for really extended periods of time. So think, you know, months and yeah. years. And, and there's been no long-term studies, but we kind of know what the outcome is, and that is the opioids uh, on a population level, they do way more harm than good. And on an individual level, there's a real risk of uh, what they call opioid-induced hyperalgesia, and that is where now the opioids are causing more pain than benefit. Mm. Uh, where are doctors now on prescribing this stuff? I mean, have, they're obviously aware of what's going on. Are, are, are they looking at this differently now? Well, I think there's a general recognition that um, 
uh, that, that we need to dial back uh, the opioid prescribing. And, you know, physicians is one word to describe a, a wide range of uh, medical practitioners. And um, some are uh, quite on top of it and have been for a, a few years, and that includes many Canadian physicians. And others are um, a little bit slower to, to, to come to that table. And, you know, my heart goes out to physicians, really. It's, and I think it's unfair to blame them mm-hmm. uh, in particular because someone comes into your general practitioner's practitioner's office and says, yeah, I've got pain. Yeah. It's very hard to describe and, and, and hard to prescribe um, uh, remedies for pain. So there's a recognition we need to dial it back, and um, uh, that was certainly the flavor out of Ottawa. And last year we saw the Center for Disease Control uh, provide new guidelines for opioid prescribing. Ontario will come on site in uh, 2017. And uh, part of the question is, like, what do we do for those folks who are uh, suffering in chronic pain? And what, what options exist and are going to be supported by governments um, f- for those folks? And what do we do about the thousands of people who are already addicted or dependent on opioids? Mm. Like, we, we know that if physicians just cut you off, then where do people go? Well, they turn to the black market. And in 2016, the black market has never been more dangerous when it comes to uh, accessing opioids. And, and, of course, we're talking about the bootleg fentanyls, right? Talk a little bit about that. Uh, obviously, we started this conversation uh, with, uh, of course, Health Canada placed restrictions on the chemicals that are used to create fentanyl. Are people making this outside of big pharma, or, or can, can you do that? Oh, yeah, yeah, you can do that. Um, you know, you just need a, uh, well, you don't have to have a chemistry degree, as we've seen, but, um, yeah, you can make it in labs, and um, I, I think... A lot of the, the fentanyls are, are coming in from overseas. Uh, China for would be a, a major source country for Canada. And, you know, it's as simple as having an Internet connection and a few bucks in your pocket, and, and all of a sudden you've got 30 grams or whatever it is of uh, a very, very toxic uh, fentanyl analog showing up at your doorstep. And the phenomenon that we've seen is is one of uh, extreme death, really. Uh, Alberta, you know, sorry, British Columbia has declared a provincial state of emergency uh, earlier this year. Alberta deaths are up 4,500% between 2011 and 2015. And in Ontario, where we don't we don't test for the bootleg fentanyls in particular, um, but we do know that fentanyl-related deaths are up uh, about 50% between 2013 and 2015. So it's easy to get. It's here in Ontario, as it is uh, in other parts of Canada, and it's showing up in a range of substances. So counterfeit pills like made to look like Oxyades or Percocets or Xanax, and it's showing up in powders, either as a pure powder or mixed into heroin or cocaine or crystal methamphetamine. And the phenomena is most people don't know that their drugs are laced with fentanyl. And so it's affecting people who are addicted or dependent on opioids, uh, but it's also affecting people who use uh, substances occasionally for which they don't have a dependency or an addiction. You know, they're out celebrating on a Friday night, they do a line of cocaine, and the next thing you know, um, they're having an opioid overdose. And we, we know an opioid overdose is, is a medical emergency where seconds really do matter. And that's what's happening right across Canada. Uh, banning chemicals, what will that do if the majority of the stuff's coming from China? Well, it's, it's part of the solution. Um, and, and the rub here, you know, given that we've um, spent so much uh, money and um, 
providing you know you know what is essentially pharmaceutical grade heroin uh, prescription opioids to Canadians um, uh, the cat's sort of out of the bag we have so many people now dependent and addicted uh, to opioids um, that given that with the absence of sort of options for uh, addiction treatment and prevention initiatives and new initiatives in harm reduction um, it's part of the solution but what we really need are initiatives in all of those pillars. You know, stuff that works, initiatives that work on uh, preventing or delaying substance use in the first place. We need expanded addiction treatment services. We need uh, improved harm reduction initiatives. And, and there are, there's room for improvement within the criminal justice system. So it may be part of the solution, but um, I, I don't think that there are many people left who think, yeah, this is going to, be the one magic thing that will uh, eliminate the bootleg fentanyls from Canada. It's, and when we say we need a range of solutions, we're talking dozens, if not hundreds, of solutions concurrently. Um, uh, but th- those other solutions are slow to come. It's, it's easy to ban substances, um, r- relatively speaking. You know, someone gets up in the House of Commons, introduces legislation, and the next thing you know, uh, something has been banned. So Canada has moved much quicker than the U.S. Uh, when it comes to banning substances. Um, and, you know, at the federal level, there's been a number of initiatives out of uh, Health Canada and Jane Philpott's office uh, over the last year. Those are all part of the package of solutions we need. Um, Where is China on this? Is it a problem there? Well, I, I don't know. Um, such a secretive society. And, yeah. um, you know, there's talk of discussions about uh, between China and Canada and uh, the RCMP um, that remains to be seen whether um, China will cease the export of, of these chemicals out of their country. The phenomena in Europe is, um, is not positive when it comes to China. There are uh, something like 500 new substances that have been identified in uh, the European states over the last uh, four or five years. They're coming typically out of China, and if a government bans them, then the chemist uh, uh, overseas, typically China, uh, would change a molecule and then you beat the regulation and Mm. it's legal again. So I think the future of drug policy in Canada, I mean, there's no going back now. Fentanyls are absolutely a public health crisis of epidemic proportions, and I'm not the only one saying that. Um, But the future also looks like a have uh, uh, a range of psychoactive substances that we've never seen before appearing on Canadian markets. That's not happening on any wide scale yet, but I suspect it's our future. How long is it going to take to get Canada off this drug or off these drugs? Well, the sooner the better, that's for darn sure. <laughs> um, it, is, it is an epidemic, and I, I would say that it's the worst drug safety crisis uh, we've ever faced in Ontario, if not uh, nationally. And what that looks like is, you know, during this conversation that that we're having, uh, someone in Canada has, has just passed away from an opioid overdose. In mm. Ontario, that's one death from opioids every 13 hours. It's one overdose death every eight hours. And um, unless we're, we're really serious about uh, an urgent and proportional and collaborative response, uh, then we're going to be fumbling in the dark for too many years to come. Um, We've seen some action from the federal government. Uh, I think there's a recognition there that more needs to be done. We've seen a couple of initiatives uh, from the Ontario government, but uh, I think it's the feeling among many in health and medicine and and local communities uh, that there's much room for improvement at the Ontario level. 
uh, because you know at the local municipal level we end up dealing with the mess, right? Yeah. And you see it manifested in uh, increased calls for paramedics. You know, um, Hamilton I think is up what 45 percent uh, uh, this year over last in terms of overdose calls, and Ottawa is up, Waterloo Region is up, and we see it manifest in. Uh, record levels of bootleg fentanyl seizures among our enforcement authorities. Um, and, and what we haven't seen is a, is a real concurrent ramp-up of addiction treatment services, uh, services in harm reduction, uh, et cetera, et cetera. They need to all happen concurrently. Michael Parkinson has been with us, drug strategy specialist with the Waterloo Crime Prevention Council. Michael, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks so much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.